Hello and welcome to this podcast from the Emergency Medicine Journal. I'm Rick Boddy. And I'm Simon Carley. And today we're going to be talking through the highlights of the February 2016 issue. So yeah, if you haven't read the EMJ recently, I suggest you pick up a copy, visit it on the website, follow us on social media. We're one of the biggest followed social media journals in the world. So get onto Twitter, get onto everything and find out what's going on. But I thought we'd bring you some of the, the top papers which we've published this month. It was quite a variety, Rick. Simon, there's so much to pick from. You know all about these papers. What do you think is the pick of the bunch? Oh, gosh. Pick of the bunch, not entirely sure. There's, I know these papers because I've done the primary survey for them, so you can read my primary survey. It's at the beginning of the journal every month, so if you need a really quick introduction to what's going on, then please read this. I think, highlight-wise, the bit that caught my eye and the bit which I've known about for some time now is from... Bowden et al. from uh, the middle of the UK, looking at an association, and we've got to be really careful here, an association between mortality and bed occupancy. And this is incredibly interesting at the moment because we've got all the issues around crowding in the UK. But this paper sought to see if when the hospital gets busy, when the occupancy levels go up into the 90s, where they're not supposed to be, do we see more deaths in hospital? And it appears that we do. Now, it's a bit complex because association is not causality, but this is really politically interesting work. So this really feeds into the political discussions at the moment with Jeremy Hunt around weekend working. Could it be that overcrowding is even more important when it comes to mortality? Do you know, I would love to do that study. There's been all of these things come out from the centre about increased mortality at the weekends, and there's been a lot of debate about it, and my interpretation is that the evidence doesn't show this weekend effect in the way that it's been spun in the media. But what we do know is that there's good evidence that overcrowding increases mortality, both in the patients who are admitted and in the ones who are discharged, actually, very interestingly. And I would love some way of comparing what we think might be happening with the weekend effects as put out by the government versus what we know is happening with overcrowding and my impression this is based on no science because this is the podcast it's not the true journal we don't need to do science so much here is that many more people are harmed by overcrowding than anything related to this weekend effect well that's a really important piece of work and there's plenty more uh, in the emj this month as well there was a nice piece on whether juniors find placements in the emergency department stressful What's that about? Well, it's always been said, I've done a lot of work with foundation doctors in the UK, so that's the first two years of their training. And the ED placement is one of the ones that they struggle with mentally before they arrive, because they think it's going to be very difficult. And to some extent it is. It's, it's hard work, it's 24-7, you work the weekends, you make a lot of decisions. And in the UK, a proportion of those decisions will be unsupervised, perhaps for the first time. So many people would say that it's, it's one of those places in, in life when you're starting to make the real decisions. And so um, Mason, Sue Mason, who we know well over in Sheffield, is a great study looking at how the junior doctors actually experienced that for themselves. And they looked to, to measure um, the change in how they felt about their self, their self-reported competence and confidence. Very important that the two are different. This is an aside. But I meet a lot of people who say, I'm so much more confident at this, but I actually want to know your competence. So they did look at both. I think that's really important. And they looked, it's a, some time ago now, maybe 2010, 2011, but they showed that amongst about, what, 200-odd doctors, that their well-being, to some extent, it did worsen in their ED placement. 
um, compared with other specialties. And they did have increased level of anxiety and reduced job satisfaction. But actually, they were within the range of other healthcare workers. So my take-home message from this is that in emergency medicine, it is what it is. It is a tough placement and it's hard work and it is challenging. It's perhaps not radically exceptional to other healthcare workers, but it is a call to arms for us to know about this, to look after our juniors more and to do the best that we can to understand that they're going to be going under some cognitive and emotional load whilst they're doing those first placements with us. Okay, so that's got big implications for our workforce planning for the future. Another nice piece in this month's EMJ was about the use of points of care ultrasound to diagnose renal stones. Now a lot of us are using CTKUB these days, it's quite readily accessible in most emergency departments, but is there a role for point of care ultrasound? What did this study show? Well I'm a big fan of point of care ultrasound. Um, I do do it for my renal colic patients because I think it's useful for me to know if they've got an obstructed kidney. So if I can spot the hydronephrosis, it's pretty bad hydronephrosis, and I wouldn't guarantee that I'm going to spot everything and I don't use it as a, a rule. Um, out strategy so I will continue to go and investigate but I think it's useful for us to know in the emergency department. Now this study was actually using radiologists not emergency physicians so it's not quite the same as us but what they did is they looked back at patients who'd had both an ultrasound and a CT and compared this or evaluated the sensitivity and the specificity of ultrasound to pick up the need for surgical intervention. Now, that's actually quite a nice outcome because you can have renal colic and most renal colic is self-limiting. I've had renal colic, it's self-limiting, jolly painful, really wouldn't recommend it. But they looked at that and they said the findings on ultrasound, which are about obstruction essentially, are 97% sensitive at identifying patients who require intervention and 28% specific. Now that's potentially got some use. I'm not sure how it's going to radically change what I do in the emergency department. I still need to investigate these patients. I still need to know what the pathology is. But I think it's another useful thing that we can have in conversation with our urological colleagues about severity and about where this patient is likely to end up. So ultrasound for renal colic, yes, I think we should be doing it. A 97% sensitive, you're actually quite close to a rule out there. Well, that all depends. If it was my renal stones, yeah, okay, I'll give you that. That's not bad. It's, it's pretty close to a rule out strategy. But only in the hands of a radiologist. This is not the emergency physicians, you've got to be a little bit careful. So this is not quite point of care in our research room or in our majors. Just be careful when you look at who did these studies. Yeah, I think that's a really important point when you're looking at ultrasound studies. Another piece that really struck me was about the use of whole body radiographs in patients with polytrauma. This is not whole body CT, this is whole body radiographs from the Lodox scanner. Yeah, I've heard a lot about this over the years, and it's one of those things that crops up on social media quite a lot. Uh, Lodox scanners, as I understand it, I've never used one, basically a really big x-ray machine. So you put the whole patient in, and it just scans, you get a, a bodygram of the patient. Now, if you don't have access to CT, then this is an alternative, and it picks up a lot of things, actually. So obviously it's pretty good for looking at the bones, but you can also um, see visceral injuries to some degree as well. And if you don't have access to CT, then this is an alternative approach. And this is a systematic review of the use of whole body CT. And essentially, it's, it's, it's probably as good as conventional radiology, sort of in, intermittent radiology. So just using this Lodox scanner is almost as good as using a separate chest x-ray, separate pelvic film and stuff like that. But the way it's often perceived to be used, which is as an entry 
system investigation which you can get rapid information from i think if that's your healthcare resource setting it's it's one of those things you should look at lodox of course is the commercial application so always going to be careful with commercial trials and things but i think if you're considering this you're not ct active then i'd recommend having a look at the systematic review yeah real food for thought for us maybe not suitable for every trauma trauma center in the uk but um certainly interesting evidence the next piece is from Anne-Marie Kelly. Anne-Marie Kelly's a legend in emergency medicine. She's done so much research. She came to talk at our Royal College Conference in Exeter a couple of years ago. And she's written a really nice piece on whether the venous blood gas can replace the arterial blood gas. What were the findings? Oh, I've heard Anne-Marie speak before and um, she's always great entertainment. And if you get the opportunity, you should go and listen to her work. She's done numerous studies over the years, so she is truly a world expert. Venous blood gas is something we advocate um, in our emergency department, don't we, Rick? Um, unless somebody's got a really good reason to have an arterial blood gas, then we say you shouldn't have an arterial blood gas. You can get away with a venous a lot of the time. And I think those days when we used to do serial um, ABGs in our diabetic patients are, are clearly well gone, and thank goodness for that. I think this is a really interesting paper because there's a lot of work out there that would suggest that you can compare VBGs and ABGs very easily. What a lot of Amory's work has done is it had a look at in the sort of patients where it matters, so the critically ill and the unwell patients. And there there are differences. And I guess it did surprise me a little bit. Um, for most things, arteriovenous agreement for pH is such that you can pretty much use them interchangeably. And bicarbonate's pretty slow, close as well. CO2, I guess we predict, is not very good. But generally speaking, your CO2 on the venous side will be higher than the arterial side. I've not yet thought of a pathology where that can go the other way around, but no doubt somebody out there will tell me um, there's a difference. So you can use a low CO2 on the venous gas, less than 45 millimetres of mercury or 6 kilopascals, and that pretty much excludes hypercarbia. And I think that will reduce again the number of ABGs that we do in the emergency department. Base excess, it's a little unclear. Um, so if you're worried about metabolic issues and you want to measure the base excess, and probably, and you want to definitively measure it, then you're back, in Anne-Marie's words, to um, doing ABGs. So, you can't completely replace the ABG, but I think we should all consider, every time we think about doing one, do I actually need to do it for this patient based on this study? So, yeah, for, this is a paper everybody in emergency medicine should read. Yeah, it sounds like we should, really, because, um, to be honest, in my practice, VBGs are taking over more and more from the ABG. It sounds like there's some pretty important things for everyone to digest. Absolutely. So the next piece is about bystander CPR. We all know how that important that is for patients' survival when they have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. A nice piece by Moncur et al. looked at the implications of a patient's socio-economic status and how that might affect the likelihood that they actually get bystander CPR. It's kind of worrying, isn't it, really, that socio-economic status, as perceived by the researchers, so looking at, at things like postcodes and locations, um, does influence your CPR likelihood. So if you collapse in a rich neighbourhood, you're more likely to get your CPR. And that's a, that's a tricky one, actually. I, I do like these public health type papers. I, mean, I think it does make us stop and think about um, how we can improve healthcare. And what are the implications of this? It's probably education. It's probably getting the message out there. It's like many things in medicine, certain groups are difficult to target some groups are very easy to target and what this would suggest to me is that this kind of data and there'll be many more studies like this out there allow us to 
target our interventions, particularly in relation to bystander CPR, which, as you say, has a, such an important effect on survivability. So I really like this paper. It highlights a very important issue, clear health inequality uh, that we've got in the, within our own country. And I guess the first stage in addressing a problem is to recognise you have one in the first place. And here we have evidence that we have a problem. The next paper is probably equally disturbing about sexual assault in the emergency department from SEMSA in Canada, looking at the frequency and characteristics of sexual assault at mass gatherings. Indeed, and there's been some really terrifying news recently um, in Europe about mass gatherings and, and multiple sexual assaults, particularly from Germany. And again, I think it's just one of these papers which makes you stop and think about what goes out there, because emergency departments, we, we see everything, don't we? And the instance of, of sexual assault at these gatherings in Canada was really very high. I think as an emergency physician, what does it mean for us? It means we need um, good uh, liaison with people who deal with sexual assault if it's not something you do within your own emergency department, but also a recognition that if events are taking place, it's certainly something that you might want to uh, particularly investigate if anybody comes in from one of those events. Okay, I'm finishing on a slightly more positive note. Let's talk about some great research from a UK emergency physician who we're both good friends with, Ed Carlton from Bristol, uh, who's a cardiology guru, and he's doing lots of research into the early diagnosis of acute coronary syndromes. And this month he's published a paper about spotting ACS at triage. Yeah, well, I thought I thought this was one for you then, Rick. You're the, you're the troponin cardiac pain gestalt guru of uh, North North of England, really, if not the world. So I don't know. What did you think? Well, this follows on quite nicely from a piece of work that Kevin Matway Jones, our own colleague here in Manchester, did quite some time ago with Stuart Teese and showed, I think, a sensitivity of around eighty-seven percent or thereabouts of triage nurses for picking up high-risk cardiac chest pain. So this follows on very nicely. Um, tell us Simon, what exactly did Ed find? What Ed and his colleagues did was to look at patients um, turning up in the emergency department and looked at whether or not the nursing staff or the medical staff could predict whether somebody was going to have a 30-day major adverse cardiac event. So the MACE thing, which we're all using now as a, as a principal outcome in most of the coronary uh, acute coronary syndrome type trials. And they were pretty good, actually. Um, what was I thought was really important was that the number of patients who were designated as low risk, who subsequently went on to have MACE, was very low. So in the physician group, only 0.3%, and in the nursing group, 1% were classified as low risk. So between the two of them, actually, the likelihood of both the nurse and the doctor missing stuff is incredibly low. Overall sensitivity for the rule out of um, MACE... 99% or 97%, depending on whether it's the doctor or the nurse. Basically, we're very sensitive at picking these things up. We're not terribly specific about it because, sadly, cardiac pain can appear with lots and lots of different findings. But it would suggest that at triage, we're, we're doing all right. Yeah, really interesting evidence. We get very worried about these patients because of the implications of missing the diagnosis of ACS. What this paper is essentially telling us is that even just at triage, a routine triage assessment in a few minutes at the time of arrival and documenting your trust score based on the modified Goldman algorithm can identify a population that has pretty low risk of adverse events within 30 days, 1.1%. Mm. Now, we might not change our practice and send patients home directly from triage. I think 
no one would be comfortable with that. But we're certainly identifying a very low risk group and that's important evidence. Yeah, and so that was primary survey for February. Um, lots and lots of things going on. And I would recommend you read some of the papers because you don't want to listen to me and Rick. You want to go out there and do your own critical appraisal and have a look on the website. The primary survey is free on the website. There's the paper of the month, there's the editor's choice. So lots and lots of free information that you can get there. And of course, if you're at a hospital, go and speak to your librarian. I'm sure they'll help you get full content. But come back and have a listen again soon. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. See you soon.